The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. We're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 4 today. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it was the passage that was read just previously by Pastor Tim. And if you're like a lot of folks, a lot of travelers enjoy, if, if you're one of these folks, I, I, I would assume that you are, it's likely that you are, you're, if, if you've traveled different places in the U.S., you likely enjoy, maybe you don't make it intentional, but at least when you pass through a town's historic district, you find it to be a fun and enjoyable experience, at least I do. Many cities and towns throughout the U.S. have established these historic districts in specific sections of their cities in order to preserve the buildings and ultimately to preserve that city or that town's connection with the past. Personally, like I've said, I find these historic districts particularly enthralling and interesting. Uh, That visible connection with the past through the the town's historic buildings and homes is for me Sometimes a powerful experience just to be in a, a building that has stood for 100, 150 years and to, to just think upon all the history and the people and the, the commerce, if it's a commercial building, or the, uh, the people, if it's a home, that have passed through that building over the years is quite an experience, at least for me. And my wife can attest to you that I was really excited in 2007 when we were planning to move out to Kentucky I was excited for seminary, but I was also excited because I am a fan of colonial architecture and the the history behind that architecture and just the fact that we were going to be in a place that had a pretty rich history in terms of our nation's founding. And we had chances to travel over to Washington, D.C. while we were in Kentucky. But even over in Kentucky, you would find a good amount of colonial architecture. And I really enjoyed that. And I really enjoyed the historic districts that even Louisville had. But a big problem facing preservation commissions these days is keeping these historic districts well-maintained. In fact, what they're finding is that there are a number of people, either landlords or occupants of homes that are occupying historic homes or occupying historic buildings, and they're not maintaining these buildings. They are, just by sheer neglect, letting them go. And law experts have termed this lack of attention to the upkeep of these historic dwellings as, quote, demolition by neglect. Demolition by neglect. This is what happens when someone has allowed their home or building to deteriorate to a point where it creates a hazardous or an unsafe environment that possibly could even require the demolition of the entire building. And when that demolition is required, the historic district itself begins to lose some of its character, some of its charm, and its direct connection to the past. The destruction of these oftentimes beautiful and intriguing buildings buildings didn't happen overnight, though. Nor was it the result of deliberate attempts to destroy the buildings, as though these residents were uh, taking their sledgehammers and and deliberately destroying these beautiful homes, all the person needed to do was neglect the reasonable upkeep and maintenance of their house or building. And it would begin to deteriorate to the point where it created an unsafe environment or where it required demolition altogether. In our text for today, we will hear a warning to make sure that we do not fall into the same pattern of neglect with the gospel and with our walk with Jesus Christ. Over the last couple of weeks, we've gotten a beautiful portrait from the author of Hebrews of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the owner of all things. He is the creator of all things. He is the one who will inherit all things and who concurrently oversees all things with his power. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. He is also God's Messiah King who has authority over all of us and over all the world. He is God's final and true king, and these attributes and credentials of the Son, you will remember, were set in contrast directly to the angels. And that's likely because there was some strain of teaching floating through this congregation or in the midst of this congregation where they were presently located that was exalting angels to an inappropriate level, almost to the point where they were exalting angels over above Jesus Christ. And so the author of Hebrews had to set Jesus in contrast to the angels to show that 
He's the creator. They are just mere created beings. He is the Lord of all. They are his servants. And so we saw that picture of Jesus in the first chapter. Jesus Christ is God of very God. He is Lord of all. He owns all. And he is our Lord. And he is the Son. The Son in whom salvation, salvation has been brought. The Son in whom, God, in, in whom God has wrought salvation for us. So then when we come to chapter 2, the author is wanting us to maintain a very clear logical connection between chapter 2 and what he has just said about Jesus in chapter 1. He begins with the word, therefore. And if you're reading the New American Standard, it might say, for this reason. If you're reading other versions of the Bible, it's likely, therefore, or for this reason, something very similar. They mean the same thing. There is a direct logical connection now between what he is about to say and what he has previously said about this glorious person of Christ, this Jesus Christ, this Son. All that he has to say is now building upon all that he has just said about Christ. The warning he's about to give is grounded on what he just said about Jesus Christ in relation to the angels. And here's what it is. In light of the glory of this Son, in comparison to the angels, there is something exceedingly important for you to do. In light of who this son is, there's something vitally important for you to do. Let's follow his argument. Again, we're going to read it, and this is going to be the first of two times we're going to read it, so you'll have heard this passage at least three times today. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Here's the command. Just put it up front for all of us. The command is to pay much closer attention to the message that we have heard. What's that message? It's the message of the gospel. It's the message of the gospel that includes this Christ that the author of Hebrews has just gotten done thoroughly describing. It's the message of this great salvation. It's the message of the salvation of your soul. Here's here's the command. You must pay much closer attention to that message. Why? Well, here's the warning. It's implicit. Lest we drift away from it. There's a possibility of drifting away from that message. And so here's the exhortation, the command. The command is for you to pay much closer attention to that gospel that you've heard, that knowledge of God that you have heard in the gospel, that knowledge of Christ that you have previously heard. Then he goes on. Now he's going to make the warning even more explicit. He's going to say, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He is now making a lesser to a greater argument. That's the warning. Something worse will happen to us if we neglect this great salvation. Something worse that happened to the people of Israel. What he's saying here is, He's referenced to angels. We mentioned this the last couple of weeks. The Old Covenant was delivered by God, but it was also delivered in some way by angels. Paul affirms this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Deuteronomy 33, verse 1 seems to teach this. And the Old Covenant had many stipulations about how to live and a lot of promises about what you would receive if you did obey God but also a lot of promises of the consequences and the punishments that Israel would receive if they didn't obey God. That is what the Old Covenant consisted largely of, is these promises and these warnings of judgment if they did not obey. And some of this discipline was especially severe. And we have in the Old Testament a record of Israel receiving Discipline and punishment for their outright disobedience to this covenant. The, old, uh, the author of Hebrews calls this just retribution, as you see in the text. They received military defeat, famine, exile, devastation of the temple, widespread death. And so the argument is, is that if that's what happened to Israel when they neglected to listen carefully to the old covenant... 
then how do we think that we can escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It's a lesser to greater argument. What you're supposed to conclude is there are worse things in store for anyone who neglects this great salvation. The phrase so great a salvation is, as we've already noted, a reference to the gospel. A gospel of God's salvation through a crucified Redeemer. It's the good news that Jesus himself declared during his earthly ministry. See what he says here in the latter part of verse 3. It was declared at first by the Lord. So it was declared by the Lord Jesus. You can, these are basically, verses 3 and 4 are a condensed summary of the four gospels and the book of Acts. Jesus declared the gospel while during his earthly ministry. And then verse 4, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. God confirmed the message of the apostles through miraculous signs to show their message had a divine origin and God's stamp of approval. And also, Jesus' own miracles were a, uh, a proof of his divine message and his divine origin as well. This gospel, this great salvation is the good news that although we are grievous sinners against a holy God who deserve His judgment, God sent His own beloved Son to pay for that punishment by bearing the penalty of sin, which is death, so that we might be forgiven of our sins judicially, but not only that, but delivered from the power of our sins so that we might even have victory over our sin in this life in some measure, but also to now be delivered from eternal judgment and look forward to eternal life in a new heavens and a new earth where only righteousness will dwell, where we will be satisfied with God forever. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the great salvation. It's the salvation of your soul from sin and eternal judgment. So if God dealt so severely with Israel while they were under the inferior and temporary covenant the old covenant, how can anyone think that they will escape God's judgment if they neglect God's salvation through his son? The answer is, there's no one who should expect to escape that judgment if you neglect this amazing salvation headed to eternal hell and rescued by the death of God's son rescued forever, a soul preserved into eternal life. It's a great salvation. If you neglect this, why in the world did you ever think that your treatment will be any different than Israel's? In fact, the the lesser to the greater argument is that it will be worse. It will be worse. What does this mean? It means that in light of who Christ is and the salvation he has brought us, We are commanded here to not drift away from him. And here, listen carefully. If you do, you will face God's just retribution, which in the context here and in the remaining context of the book of Hebrews that we'll see over the next several messages, that the rest of the context of Hebrews confirms that this warning here and the other warnings in the book of Hebrews refer to eternal judgment. Eternal condemnation, eternal hell. Everyone listening today, everyone listening today, no exceptions. The command to you is to not neglect this great salvation or you will face eternal judgment. And I already know that the gears are turning in a lot of heads and hearts right now. I know that that last statement immediately sparked different thoughts and interpretations in your own mind. And you know what? That's not surprising because the book of Hebrews has generated a lot of different interpretations throughout the history of the church for this very reason. Some of you may be thinking this. Some of you may be thinking, hey, you can't say that to Christians. Don't you know that a believer in Christ is eternally secure? What you just said makes it sound like Christians can lose their salvation. That contradicts what Scripture clearly teaches. Well, I chose my words very carefully in keeping with the argument of this passage, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. But I sympathize with your feeling and apparent tension here. I sympathize with you. Don't worry. I'm, I'm with you, all right, in feeling that tension. Generally speaking, I found that Christians 
are just not used to thinking in these categories, which is probably one of the reasons why the book of Hebrews is not the first one you jump to when you're considering, hmm, what, Bible, what book of the Bible should I do for my personal devotions? We, just for whatever reason, we just don't float towards Hebrews. At least that's been my experience as I've talked to people. We're like, Romans is good, John is good, Colossians is good because it's kind of short, Philippians is nice, but Hebrews, woo, I'll wait another 30 years and then I'll get into that one. But as I've already noted, over the years, Bible teachers and interpreters have sought to solve these apparent difficulties in a multitude of ways. Just the same way that you probably were just now, as I read that last part of the verse and then explained how it's as a reference to eternal judgment, you are already trying to interpret this passage in light of what you already know about God's word and, and other important doctrines. And that's simply what has happened in the history of interpretation. There have been a multitude of interpretations of this particular book generally, and then specifically how these warnings fit with what we know in the rest of the New Testament. One group of interpreters argues that this warning that I just gave and gave the interpretation of, one group of interpreters argues that this warning in chapter 2 and other warnings in the book of Hebrews, remember I said that there are five and possibly six depending on how you count them, Chapters 2, chapters 3, 6, 10, and 12, they all contain specific warnings. These warnings, so the argument goes, because they're so severe and because they clearly refer to eternal judgment, not just, not just temporal destruction or the loss of heavenly rewards, which is another view altogether, these warning passages, for that reason, this warning passage here and the ones in the other chapters must mean that a Christian can lose their salvation. That's one interpretation in the history of interpretation. We will call this the loss of salvation view. Okay? This is the loss of salvation view. This is one way that people have interpreted the warnings in Hebrews. Another group of interpreters will argue that this warning and the other warnings in the book of Hebrews cannot imply that a Christian can lose their salvation. And they'll usually point to really important New Testament texts like John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30, which says that Jesus calls his own and whoever he calls and, and, and brings into his fold cannot be lost, which is a wonderful truth, one we will affirm wholeheartedly. They'll also uh, affirm Romans chapter 8, verses uh, 28 through 39, which says that, the, that God will not let us go. The love of Christ will not let us go. Even when we go through the worst of trials, God is holding on to us. Why? Because he has planned our salvation from the very beginning. And he will bring it to pass. And so, because these passages teach quite convincingly that a genuine Christian cannot lose their salvation, these warnings must not be directed towards Christians. Instead, they're directed towards the pseudo-believer, the faker, the poser, the almost-Christian. And it's the job of the interpreter to figure out who he's talking about when you're reading the passage. Is he talking about the real Christian here, or is he talking about the poser here? Who is he talking about? And we'll call this the multiple audience view, the multiple audience interpretation of the warnings in Hebrews. Who is he talking to? Okay, that's one way to interpret these warnings. Another group of interpreters, also out of a concern to protect the doctrine of eternal security, that's what I just described from John chapter 10 and Romans chapter 8. That's the doc those passages teach the doctrine of eternal security. And it's, it's, a, it's a doctrine that we must all affirm wholeheartedly that a genuine Christian cannot lose their salvation. But they're trying to protect that doctrine. And in doing so, they'll say that these warnings are merely hypothetical. Because we know that true believers can't fall away, these warnings must be theoretical at some level and not really applicable to the Christian. And we'll call this the hypothetical warning view. Others have called it the hypothetical loss of salvation view. And then finally, another view is that these are not referring to loss of salvation at all, but a loss of rewards in heaven or to temporal destruction that you will experience if you fall away from Jesus. In other words, this view, again, trying to protect the doctrine of eternal security, says that these warnings are not warnings about hell, but how badly things might go for you on, in this life and how many rewards you will lose in the next life if you fall away from Jesus Christ. Again, similar to the multi-audience view and the hypothetical warning view, it's trying to protect the doctrine of eternal security. Because the believer is eternally secure in Christ, these warnings cannot be about eternal judgment. 
They must refer to the believer experiencing temporal judgment or to losing their rewards in heaven. So we can call this the loss of rewards view. You could call it the temporal judgment view. My aim today and for the remaining time that I have to preach this glorious book to you is to show that none of these interpretations adequately accounts for the context of Hebrews as a whole or the context of the warning passages, nor do these interpretations make theological sense when read in light of other biblical passages. And because of these inadequacies, and here's the really important part, because of these inadequacies, these interpretations cannot provide the pastoral care and blessing that they were intended to give the believer. So I got a major pastoral agenda with getting this right. If we don't get it right, you will not receive the pastoral care and blessing you are meant to receive from these warnings. And believe me, you are meant to receive some pastoral care and blessing from these passages. Let's begin by establishing the audience question. Who is he talking to? Who is this author talking to? Here it is. He is speaking at all times to believers. Okay? He is speaking at all times to believers. How do we know that? Well, most importantly, we know that because he uses the first person plural throughout the entire letter. And he uses it with the warnings as well as the blessings and as well as the promises. If he, if he is indicting the pseudo-Christian, the faker, the poser with the warnings, as, as the multiple audience view suggests, then he would be indicting himself, just like we see here. He says, uh, For since the message was declared by angels, it proved to be reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He's He's referring to himself, and then in the other warnings, he will refer to himself as well. He'll group himself together with the other people he's writing to. But then in chapter 4, verse 14, just as an example, he will group himself up, group himself together with, with everybody talking about the access that they have to Jesus. He says this in 4.14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And this is the way that he talks throughout the book. We, 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 us, us, us. So the suggestion that he is somehow indicting the poser or the, the non-believer or the faker or the pseudo-Christian in these warnings doesn't make sense because then he would be indicting himself. The person who takes the multiple audience approach of the book of Hebrews cannot adequately demonstrate when the author is shifting between audiences because of this use of the first person. The, the suggestions that he is would be arbitrary or begging the question. What do I mean by begging the question? Little little logic class here. You guys have probably heard this in your uh, in, in school growing up or in your college classes. What does it mean to beg the question? Because the author of Hebrews is using the first person plural with reference to both the warnings and the blessings and just grouping himself together with the people he's writing to, you can't distinguish between audiences unless you presuppose that whenever he is speaking warnings, he must not be referring to Christians. But that's just assuming your conclusion, which is the logical fallacy of begging the question. The question we're trying to ask is, who are the warnings addressed to? The multiple audience approach is basically saying, we know that the author is addressing pseudo-believers in the, uh, in the warning passages because he can't be addressing believers in such warnings. <laughs> That's not an argument. That's just circular reasoning, right? You're basically saying, this is the way it is because this is the way it is. And sorry, that's not the way it is. But, um, but that's, that's the logical fallacy of begging the question. We, this idea that we can distinguish between the audiences is, 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 a, is a bad one because of the way he is continually referring to himself in both the warnings and the promises with the we and the, the us and, the so, and so on. So although the multiple audience interpretation is seeking to protect the doctrine of eternal security, a true and glorious doctrine, let me just be clear on that, and one that we must embrace, it doesn't reckon with the actual text of Hebrews, particularly the author's consistent use of the first person plural. He's talking to himself, and he's talking to everybody. He's talking to himself, he's talking to everybody when he's talking about the promises and when he's talking about the warnings. And that's actually going to help us unlock how to apply these warnings. What about the loss of salvation view? Well, we know that that 
interpretation isn't legit because the author himself regularly draws his listeners back to his conviction that, that they are not going to fall away. They're going to heed his warnings. For example, right after chapter 6, with, which is just, just the most blistering warning, that in chapter 10, man, just brutal. But that right after chapter 6, he goes on to say this. He says, For um, though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust to overlook your work and the love that he, you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Then and again in chapter 10, verse 39. This is an important verse, particularly verse 39. Important passage, but verse 39 is especially important. He goes on to say that, even though he's just had issued a warning in verses 26 through 31, he now exhorts his listeners to not give up on their hope in Christ, and he declares his own certainty that he and the people he's writing to will not fall away. Okay? Watch this. He goes, verse 36, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and yet not delay, but my righteous one shall, have, shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So he is confident that they're going to heed these warnings. He's not saying that they're going to lose their salvation. But there are other ways we know that he believes in eternal security. He applies the new covenant to these people in uh, chapter 8, verses 8 through 13. And the new covenant is a covenant that cannot be broken. So if you're in the new covenant, can't break it, which means you can't be lost. Can't lose your salvation. In 10.14, speaking of the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice, he says that that sacrifice has perfected for all time. Looking into the future, that sacrifice has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So if you're presently being sanctified, Jesus Christ has purchased that sanctification for you, but he's also purchased your perfection. If you're currently being sanctified, you can look forward to the certainty of that perfection. Why? Because salvation is secure. And then finally, in chapter 12, verses 3 through 11, he talks about gaining assurance from the discipline that we receive from the Lord because only true sons, only true children, receive discipline from the Lord. And being a son or being a child of God is, some, is a legal rendering that cannot be revoked. It cannot be reversed. So the very theology of Hebrews rejects the idea that you can lose your salvation. We actually don't need to go to other passages in the New Testament, as helpful as that might be. The author of himself is proving and showing that he doesn't believe you can lose your salvation. Another point we need to bring out, and one that we'll bring out in more detail later as we work through other warnings in the book of Hebrews, is that the, the author doesn't imply or state that anyone has fulfilled the conditions he is laying out. He doesn't say, some of you have drifted away, therefore the rest of you make sure that you don't drift away. No, he's saying that these warnings, uh, in these warnings that the consequence will happen if the condition is met. If you drift away from Jesus, you will face a just retribution. That's all he's saying. Okay? All of this evidence leads us to the conclusion that the author of Hebrews believes that genuine salvation cannot be lost. Nowhere in the entire book does he suggest that salvation can be lost. Therefore, we must reject wholeheartedly the loss of salvation view. And if anyone is here with a view that you can lose your salvation, there's just no real way that you can have assurance and you will walk in great trouble and darkness or just self-righteousness for much of your life because you think it's all up to you. What about the temporal judgment or loss of heavenly rewards view? Well, the problem with this view, and we'll see this even more acutely as we walk through these warnings. The warnings seem to kind of increase in their severity as you walk through the book. This is a severe warning, but in terms of the language, they just get more and more sharp, it seems. The problem with this loss of heavenly rewards view, saying that this isn't talking about eternal judgment, Derek. This is talking about loss of rewards or temporal judgment that we might experience. The problem with that view is it just doesn't reckon with the language of the warnings. Here we already saw that if we drift away from this great salvation, we will receive a just retribution that is greater than what the disobedient Israelites experienced. In chapter 3, we were warned 
to make sure that we enter our eternal rest. The opposite of eternal rest is eternal judgment. In chapter 6, the judgment for the person who falls away after tasting the good word of God is likened to being cursed and burned. And then in chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, the person who rejects Christ who will face God's vengeance. And then in chapter 12, verses 25 through 28, those who fall away from Christ will face God who is called a consuming fire in that passage. So the loss of heavenly rewards or the temporal judgment view, they just don't reckon with the language of the the passages. They're not doing justice to that language. Similarly, the hypothetical view doesn't reckon fully with the language of the warnings. There's no hint in the warnings that they are merely hypothetical. The author of Hebrews issues these warnings with utter seriousness. He means what he says. If the condition is met, the consequence will follow. The person who falls away from Christ will face eternal judgment. Now again, those who propose the view of, the, of multiple audience model, multiple audience view and the hypothetical view, and uh, even the loss of, uh, loss of heavenly rewards view, they're trying to protect the doctrine of eternal security. And for that, I am thankful. Okay? So they have set out to interpret these passages in light of the doctrine of eternal security. And to that, I can say Amen. I'm, I'm thankful that that's a view that they want to, a, a doctrine they want to uphold. A genuine believer cannot be lost. Let that truth just ring out across the congregation here for a moment. But here's the ironic piece. And this is what's so crucial for us this morning if we're going to apply this passage in a way that brings the pastoral blessing that the author of Hebrews desires for us. Here's the irony. These three views, multiple audiences, loss of heavenly rewards, in the hypothetical view, although they are trying to protect eternal security, they're actually undermining it by not handling the warnings the way they should be handled and by not giving these warnings their full weight and force. So, ironically, in the goal to protect eternal security, they're actually undermining it. In order to receive and enjoy the pastoral benefit and blessing from these warnings that the author intends for us to receive and enjoy, we must first read them as directed to Christians. Two, read them as referring to eternal judgment. And three, read them as real warnings, not hypothetical warnings. So let's get back to our passage for today. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression and disobedience or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. The word neglect in verse 1 is conceptually related to the word drift in verse 3. The warning is not emphasizing an overt, all of a sudden rejection of the good news of Jesus' great salvation. That's not the emphasis here. The warning is about mere carelessness, inattention, apathy, indifference, the slow growth of desires for other things that begin to crowd out a desire for God, like Jesus says in Mark chapter 4, verse 13. It's like the the captain of a ship who, out of weariness over the regular routine of securing his ship at port, doesn't have the crew anchor the boat upon arrival. Yes, the wind is calmly blowing seaward, but surely we don't have to secure the anchor in light of such a calm and peaceful breeze. So the men disembark from the ship, collect supplies in town, and then come back to the ship to sleep. Well, that gentle breeze carries the ship out toward the ocean overnight and right into a rock formation at the mouth of the inlet. The hull of the ship is pierced by the rocks and the ship eventually sinks, but not because the captain was driving the boat recklessly recklessly through the ocean and into a reef. It was just because he chose not to secure the anchor and a little breeze carried them out to their doom. Falling away from Christ may look abrupt, A person just finally says, I'm done with Christ in his church. But it never really is abrupt. That abrupt decision is simply the result of a slow drift over time, a shipwreck due to a light breeze and a little neglect. 
the warning to every professing believer listening to this letter as it was read 2,000 years ago, and the warning to every professing believer in this room today and out in the courtyard and listening in on YouTube is this. Do not neglect this great salvation. Do not drift away from Christ or you will face a just retribution that is worse than what disobedient Israelites faced. Now, what are some signs you might be asking? Because this is a, I think this is an important question. What are some signs, Derek, that I might be drifting away from the gospel? I think we can group these signs, and this is just going to be brief because we're going to talk a lot about this as we work through the book of Hebrews. Okay? So this is not exhaustive by any means. But I think we can group the, these signs together underneath what we could call a spiritual failure to thrive. A spiritual failure to thrive. You know, when babies are born, they're supposed to meet certain developmental milestones. And when they don't, sometimes the diagnosis is a failure to thrive. When they don't meet these milestones, or even when they start to go backwards, doctors might offer the general diagnosis of a failure to thrive. And so here, I want to just draw a few things out of the, the, the text of Hebrews, the context of Hebrews itself, to see if we can discover any kind of signs of a spiritual failure to thrive that indicate that we're, we're starting to drift. The first and most important one would be a disinterest in Jesus Christ. A disinterest in Jesus Christ. Throughout the letter, the author exhorts his listeners to consider Jesus, to look to Jesus, to fix their eyes on Jesus. And he rebukes them in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, for not wanting to know more and deeper things about Jesus. They've lost their taste for the Lord Jesus. So he has to give them a beautiful, glorious picture as he gives us in chapter 1. A sure sign that someone is failing to thrive spiritually is a growing disinterest and di- indifference towards their Savior, Jesus Christ. Another sign is a heart that is growing less sensitive to the Word of God. In chapters 3 and 4, the author of, Hor- uh, of Hebrews warns the people to not harden their hearts like the rebellious Israelites who didn't receive God's Word with faith. We're supposed to receive God's Word at all times with soft and tender receptive hearts, opening our hearts to the Word of God, obeying it, listening to it, seeking it, desiring it, longing after it. Indifference toward the Word of God is a sign of a failure to thrive spiritually in the context of Hebrews. You could also say that unbelief towards towards our future promises is also a sign. Throughout the letter, the author of Hebrews encourages the saints regularly to give up their wealth and fame and comfort for the sake of their future reward of God and of heaven, for this future city that even the Old Testament saints were looking towards, and we're supposed to look to them and how they exercise faith to look beyond this world to the the life to come and make progress in the faith and put sin to death and seek after that heavenly kingdom. Faith in our heavenly future is is the fuel that keeps the engine of the Christian life running when we're not believing and hoping in these promises it's an indication that we're failing to thrive spiritually the the promises of future hope are the lifeblood of the Christian how else do we survive this life number four another sign not growing in our ability to discern truth from error good from evil chapter five will be an important passage for us because it's there where the author lays a very stern rebuke to this people because they are starting to go backwards spiritually, back into some immaturity. And the implication of something he says in verse 14 is that maturity should, will evidence itself in the ability to discern from good and evil, right and wrong, truth and error. And th- the implication is that they're not able to do this. They're losing their ability to do this. They're Spiritual faculties are being numbed and, and not sharp, and they're, they're not really able to, to understand and see and discern truth from error, right from wrong, good from evil, and they should be able to. Maturity would enable them to do this. So not, uh, the inability to discern truth from error, good from evil, is a sign that you're not thriving spiritually. Inability, this is number five, inability to teach others the truth of Scripture. This is also in chapter five. And he's not talking about the inability to get up in the pulpit or in the lectern and, and to teach a message. 
In chapter 5, he's referring to the ability to simply teach one another, to teach others the, the basic truths of Scripture and some of the deeper truths of Scripture from your heart. You understand them, you believe them, and you may not be a very eloquent person, but you can at least explain to them the truths of Scripture at some level. Apparently, with this group, they're starting to go backwards and not able to do that. He says, you should be teachers by now. But because you're starting to drift back into immaturity, that is showing itself, that, that's, that failure to thrive is showing itself in this inability to articulate from the heart biblical truths, and then finally drifting away from the body of Christ. That is a sign, perhaps one of the most important in the book, besides drifting away from and having an indifference towards Jesus, is this drifting away from the body of Christ. And you see this here in Hebrews 10, 24-25. This is vital. Let's turn there for a moment. He begins this section, verses 24 and 25, with verse 23. He says, Let us hold fast our confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then, and then he follows in verse 26, if you want to continue. He follows that with one of the letter's most severe warnings. One of the letter's most severe warnings is preceded by an exhortation not to neglect the public and physical gathering of God's people in corporate worship and fellowship. As we'll see in future messages, one of the primary ways that God keeps us in the faith is through the local body of Christ and the exhortations and the encouragements that we get from one another. That is one of the primary ways that God keeps us in the faith. We'll see that in chapter 3. We're already seeing it here in chapter 10. One of the clear indications that a professing believer is failing to thrive spiritually is when they begin to drift away from that source of exhortation and encouragement in their local church. That is why, that, just to get personal here, that's exactly why the elders were so desperately concerned about the whole COVID lockdown thing. Because we knew it wasn't good for any of us to be out of fellowship like that for that long. It had everything to do with your spiritual health. It had everything to do with your perseverance in the faith. It had everything with you remaining healthy spiritually. And then after things opened up to find that some weren't as excited to get back to fellowship. I'll just be honest. That's not a good sign. It's just not a good sign. If after things are opened up, you didn't have a, a, an appetite to get back to fellowship, that's not a good sign for you. Why? Because it's the local gathering of believers that God uses to keep you believing. You turn your back on that, well, I can give you stories of what it looks like when people turn their back on the church. It's not pretty. So how do we respond to this warning in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4? How should we respond? Well, if necessary... Some of us might need to repent of our apathy towards Christ, our lack of love for Christ and his saints. Some of us might need to repent of our growing infatuation with this world and giving, getting everything that we possibly can in this life. Some of us might need to repent from being ashamed of Christ among our peers. That will deaden our spiritual senses. Some of us might need to repent of making the primary pursuit of our lives the pleasures of entertainment and recreation instead of the service to Christ and his church and to our neighbors. Some of us might need to start taking deliberate sides to grow in spiritual maturity. Some of us might need to repent of neglecting this great salvation that Christ has purchased for us. Now, some of us might respond this way. Derek, I haven't neglected this great salvation. I've repented of my sins. I've believed in Christ. I have the Holy Spirit. The Spirit testifies to me that I'm a child of God. I walk in obedience to Christ and I regularly confess my sin and enjoy a good conscience. I enjoy the Word of God. It affects me. It changes me. I'm rooted in the local church. I know my salvation is secure. I have assurance of my salvation. This warning is not for me. I can't drift away from God. And to this I would respond, praise God that you are walking in full assurance. 
That's God's will for you. God's will for you is to walk in full assurance. But here's the key. To set this warning against full assurance and eternal security is to misunderstand how God keeps your salvation secure. Let me say that again. To set this warning and set the warnings of Hebrews against the doctrines of eternal security and against assurance of salvation is to misunderstand how God keeps your salvation secure. And so here comes the good news, because I know some of you are, are feeling the pain, all right? And I felt the pain, too, with this, this book of Hebrews. See, to say that salvation is secure does not mean that a person can profess faith and even show signs, some signs of walking with the Lord, and then a few months or years later reject Christ, walk away from Him, and still expect to go to heaven because their, quote, salvation is secure. That's not eternal security. That's not the doctrine of eternal security. Here's the doctrine of eternal security. Here's the good news of doc, uh, eternal security. The biblical doctrine of eternal security is the good news that God keeps us believing and keeps us repenting our entire life until we go home to heaven. The good news of eternal security is the good news that God keeps us believing and keeps us repenting our entire life until we go to heaven. It's the good news that we are not just saved at a point in time, but that God saves us, protects our faith, and brings us to final salvation in heaven. That's the good news. The good news of salvation is that God keeps us believing and keeps us repenting until we die. And praise God for that. Praise God that it's not up to me. God keeps us believing. God keeps us repenting. But the question we have to ask in light of these passages, what? How does he do it? How does he do it practically? One of the ways he does it is by giving us severe warnings of what will happen if we stop believing and stop taking sin seriously. That's one of the, it's not the only way, but it's one of the ways that God keeps his people believing by giving them severe warnings of what will happen if they don't. We must continue to believe and exercise repentance our whole life long. We have to do that in the midst of trial, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of loss, in the midst of pain, in the midst of poverty, in the midst of persecution, even during seasons of affluence and times of peace. We must be always believing and always repenting. But how is God going to make that happen? How does he do that? One of the ways, not the only ways, is by giving us issuing serious, sharp, and severe warnings of what will happen if we drift away from Christ. You can start to see now why the hypothetical view is so pastorally useless. It's just a useless view. Actually, the phrase hypothetical warning, in my judgment, is just a contradiction in terms. A hypothetical warning is no warning at all, right? It's no warning at all. In order for a warning to be effective, you want the warning to be effective. See, I didn't back off from making this super sharp this morning because you want the warning to be effective. It would be a hateful thing for me to come up here and blunt the edges of this sharp sword. You want the warning to be effective, which means you have to hear the full weight of these warnings. A hypothetical warning is no warning at all. In order for the warning to be effective, it must be a real warning of what will happen if you meet the conditions of the warning. In order to keep us believing, these warnings have to have real bite, which is why the loss of heavenly rewards view doesn't work either. These must be real, and a believer needs to hear these warnings, feel the truth of them, and respond, Whoa! I do not want that to happen to me. I need to make sure that I'm not drifting and I will not drift away from Jesus Christ. If that's your response this morning, praise God. That's a good and right response. As I've already noted, some of us might need to respond to this message this morning saying, I need to exercise some repentance in my life. I need to confess some sin to God and to other brothers and sisters who I can trust. I need to rekindle my passion and zeal for the Lord Jesus Christ. I need to reestablish a pattern of faithfully, faithful obedience and spiritual disciplines in my life. I need to repent of being ashamed of Christ at the office, at school. I need to deal definitively with pornography in my life. Those are the right responses to these warnings. That's exactly what they were intended to do. See, what's crucial to understand, and, and this is good news, what's crucial to understand and in interpreting these passages the right way 
is that God's intention in issuing these warnings is to deepen the believer's assurance. I wish I would have heard this 20 years ago. I may not have taken eight months off of school. And it's spiritual tailspin. These passages are built to strengthen your assurance. How do I know that? Chapter 6, verse 7. Again, just so happens that it comes right after one of the most severe warnings in the, the text. Verse 11, And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who faith and patience inherit the promises. God's desire for you, God's aim for you, is full assurance of salvation. Every single one. The goal of the warnings is to strengthen and deepen your assurance, not to undermine it. These warnings are meant to demolish unbelief, provoke heartfelt repentance, thrust you out of entrenched patterns of sin, and set you back on the straight and narrow path of joy and a solid future hope. That's what the warnings are intended to do. If you are, okay, if you are already walking in assurance, take these warnings seriously so that you can make sure your assurance is genuine and not presumptuous. Because a person could say, well, I'm assured, but it's not built on the right foundation. So if you are already walking in assurance, take these warnings seriously. Okay? If you are walking in faith and obedience and the joy of the Holy Spirit, take these warnings seriously. If you right now are walking in the joy of obedience in the Holy Spirit and you are assured of your salvation, take the warning seriously. Don't say, ah, it's not for me. Take the warning seriously. Let the warning steal your resolve to never fall away from Christ. That goes for everyone listening today. Every single one of us, including myself. See, by taking the warning seriously, you are not implying that your salvation can be lost. Some of you might be taking it that way. If I take this warning seriously, that means I'm in, in, in concluding and implying that I could lose my salvation. No, it's just the opposite. You're showing that your salvation is secure because God is enabling you by His Spirit to use the means He has provided you to keep believing. Let's say that again. By taking the warning seriously, you are not implying that your salvation can be lost. Just the opposite. You are showing that your salvation is secure because God is enabling you by His Spirit to use the means that He has given to keep you believing. Taking the warning seriously is proof that you possess a secure salvation. Taking the warning seriously is proof that you possess a secure salvation. When you hear these warnings and you are humbled and you cry out to God to help you keep believing and you start following through in the areas you need to repent in your own life, that's God keeping your salvation secure in real time. When you are walking with the Lord in a happy, obedient life and these warnings strengthen your conviction even more to not fall away from Christ, that's God keeping your salvation secure in real time. That's how it works. That's the dynamic of the Christian life. A person who refuses to take these warnings seriously actually shows that they likely don't possess a secure salvation. Let's try to understand this with, of course, a hiking illustration. <laughs> Say that you're in the Swiss Alps. Why the Swiss Alps? Well, because, I mean, why wouldn't you want to be in the Swiss Alps? Am I right? And you are on a long, multi-day trek, and you come to a massive suspension bridge. And it spans a huge valley. The bridge is very long, it's very old, and it's in great disrepair. Some of the slats are missing, and the guard ropes are tattered. But it must be crossed in order for you to get to your destination and to get that view of Mount Rosa. Now, you would never attempt to span this bridge on your own because you've heard how dangerous it is. Indeed, many people who have attempted to cross this bridge without a guide have fallen to their death. But thankfully, you've been traveling with a guide who's been leading trips across this bridge for many, many years, many decades, and he has a reputation throughout the region for protecting travelers during hikes like this. In fact, he has a reputation of never losing one of his travelers. 
He's guided over 5,000 people across this bridge over his 30-year career. He's never lost one. But even though he's known generally as a warm and gentle man, he also has a reputation for being really quite stern when he leads groups across the bridge. Reports from travelers say that when you are crossing the bridge, he will often yell rather loudly at everyone in the group. He will call out foolish behavior, and he'll call out careless steps. He is known to turn around and look people directly in the eye and tell them, if you don't stop this silliness, you will fall to your death and be dashed upon the rocks on the valley floor. When people get tired and start to sit down, he raises his voice to such a pitch and shouts warning so loud and serious that the person who was trying to rest usually snaps out of their stupor, gets up immediately, and keeps moving. Now, he is regularly encouraging his followers with promises of how amazing it is on the other side of the bridge. He tells them of the beautiful peaks that they'll be able to see and the views of the valley that are just wonderful from that high up. He tells them how good... Their lunch will taste once they get to their destination. But interspersed with these encouragements are a fair amount of warnings of what will certainly happen if you stop walking or turn around or make foolish missteps. Now, in this scenario, the guide knows that all of the team will make it across the bridge. He has never lost anyone. His encouragements and warnings are carefully tailored to get his followers to do exactly what it takes to get them to the end. But in order for the warnings to have their desired effect, they must be real warnings. They can't be hypothetical warnings. And you listening to and heeding the warnings does not suggest that you might be the first of the guide's followers to fall off the bridge. Actually, by heeding the warnings, you demonstrate that you trust the guide, you trust his reputation, and you believe that he will keep you secure and keep you all the way to the other side of the bridge. And I think this is how we're to think about the warnings in Hebrews. And we'll revisit these principles as we make our way through the book. But it is vital to get these truths deep into our minds up front. I just said kind of offhand to the, the young professionals on Thursday as we're discussing something else. I said, you guys got to be here on this Sunday because this is going to be the most important. And then they started laughing, thinking I was saying the most important sermon I've ever preached. No, that's not what I was going to say. I was going to say is the most important probably in Hebrews, because we're laying the foundation for how to understand all the subsequent warnings in the book of Hebrews. We have to learn to take them seriously. We have to learn to take them seriously while at the same time having assurance and recognizing that they're meant to deepen our assurance, while at the same time understanding the doctrine of eternal security. We must respond to them with seriousness, knowing that it's God's design that these warnings deepen and confirm our assurance as we diligently work to make sure that we don't experience the consequence of the warning, that we don't drift away from what we have heard and suffer the consequences. How do we do that? Well, we've already touched on it today. And one of the things that we'll continue to touch on, that the, the book itself will touch on in subsequent messages, is one of the ways essential ways we guard against drifting away from what we have heard is by planting ourselves squarely in the local church and opening ourselves to the accountability of and, and the accountability of other believers in the regular preaching of the word of God this will help us maintain our love for Christ nourish our faith and keep us anchored to the truth of God's word as we study this passage that is replete with warnings, it is no coincidence that he is so emphatic about the centrality of the local church for your spiritual health. Some of you are floating around. Some of you don't have a, a strong desire to be back into fellowship. And the warning would be, at the same time as the encouragement, plant yourself in the local church, in a local church where you're going to hear the word of God, you're going to hear it taught, you're going to receive accountability from other believers. And that will be one of God's means, along with the warnings, to keep you persevering in the faith, as he has promised to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the sharp words of your word. Words not meant to 
undo genuine assurance, but to deepen it and to strengthen it. Thank you for the warnings. Thank you for how you've designed the Christian life. Thank you for the way you keep us secure by giving us sharp warnings of what happens if we turn from Christ. I pray, God, that this message would have its effect on every person listening, whether they are here presently or they are in watching YouTube. God, I pray that these words would be effective, that you would use them to stir up repentance and ultimately to stir up and bring about true assurance of faith. We ask that you do all these things for your glory and for our eternal good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.